Good morning. It's a blessing uh, to be able to gather with you, and uh, we're so thankful the Lord's given us this opportunity, and you all know, and I certainly know, that uh, today is a day that almost every church, and for good reason, focuses in on one particular theme that the Bible lays out. It's actually a central theme. And most of you, even if you're a very young person, a small child, you know what that theme of the Bible is. And we refer to this season as Christmas season. And throughout church history, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians, have referred to this season as Advent season. And today's the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is always the Sunday immediately prior to what we refer to as Christmas. But the meaning of Christmas is not sentimental. We know, and really the world knows, that it's actually not about shiny trinkets and presents and gifts and bows and lights and trees and meals and family gatherings. All those are great. But everybody knows that that's not the point. But sometimes even Christians have a misdirected focus. Because it's not even actually sentimental. Christmas, according to Scripture, is not even about a baby that was born in Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough. Now that's a core part of the biblical story, but there's actually a point to that baby being born. And if I were to say it in a way that may resonate more deeply with our generation and our day and the hustle and bustle of, of our life and this time of year for, for where we live, I, I would just say it simply like this. Christmas draws a very bold line in the sand. And really, God sent this little baby who you all know I'm alluding to to demand a verdict. To require you to give an answer. No answer is an answer. Saying nothing is saying something. And God sent His Son to demand a verdict from every single human heart. The Athanasian Creed, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, highlights the line in the sand and the line through your heart concerning what you must believe about this little baby that God sent. Do you agree with these lines? And I challenge you to listen carefully enough to give your yes or your no at the end of this summary of a portion of the Athanasian Creed. Our brothers and sisters in church history fighting against heresies. People who say Jesus is this or Jesus is that or this Christianity means this or Christianity means that. True believers said, no, this is the heart of it all. Quote, it is necessary for eternal salvation that we believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, 
is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of His Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of His Mother, born in time. Completely God. Completely human. With a rational soul. And human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity. Less than the Father as regards humanity. Although He is God and human, Yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by His divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity unto Himself. He is one. Certainly not by the blending of His essence, but by the unity of His person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too. The one Christ is both God and human. On that truth, rest your eternal salvation. And God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might be set free from the curse and demands of the law and receive the adoption of sons. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, born those many years ago, existed long before the time He was ever housed in His mother's womb. He's God from all eternity. He has no beginning. From everlasting, He is. His name is I Am. He's the Eternal One. And in His previous eternity, which is an oxymoronic way to talk about forever, He didn't have a body. In His unity among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, He was not embodied. It was not until His incarnation that He took on the humanity that the Athanasian Creed talked about and demands that we must embrace on the basis of Scripture in order, as the Creed said, is necessary for eternal salvation. So today I invite you to a perhaps surprising passage. One that was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. Psalm chapter 40. To consider a question, why did God give to His eternal Son a human body? And why does He still bear that same body today? As He's enthroned in glory in heaven. And why why will He forever retain His humanity that He took on in the Incarnation. Why does your eternal salvation depend on the Lord Jesus Christ retaining His human body for all eternity? Psalm chapter 40. I'll read just three verses to begin our reading. Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. Hear the Word of the living God. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight 
to do Your will. Oh my God, Your law is within my heart. Would you join me for a moment again as we approach the throne of grace and ask the one true God to help us understand those few verses. Father in heaven, I'm certainly not much to work with. I'm actually less than nothing. But I give you every ounce of me right now. And I ask for the filling of your Holy Spirit. I ask for the full anointing of the power of God on the preaching of your word. And I'm asking that every single person will be arrested by the beauty of Jesus. Do it for your glory, we ask in his name. Amen. Today's sermon text does not contain any of the words of the title of our sermon. The title of today's sermon is, A Body You Have Prepared for Me. So why would I read Psalm 40, verses 6-8 through and title a sermon like that on the basis of those verses? Well, if you let your eyes fall on verse 6 and land on the New American Standards rendering of the phrase, My ears you have opened. That's Psalm 40, verse 6. That's actually the basis of the title of today's sermon. But in order to connect the dots from my ears you have opened to our title, a body you have prepared for me, you've got to read more than Psalm 40. You actually have to have the whole Bible in view. In just a few moments, I want to try to connect some of the most important dots in the Bible for each of us. You see, David... King David originally wrote Psalm 40, as I mentioned a moment ago, about a thousand years before Jesus was born. But when Jesus was born, and when he grew, he read this same psalm. The exact same verses that I read for you just a moment ago. The Lord Jesus himself heard these verses read in the synagogue, meditated on this very passage of Scripture, mused on it, prayed over it in His own quiet time. And when He read this chapter, the New Testament tells us what He thought about it. And when the New Testament tells us what Jesus thought about those three verses that I read for you, His conclusion is recorded for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in God's Word in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen carefully and buckle your seatbelt. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He comes into the world, There's your Advent verse. When He became a man, when He was born of a woman, that little baby in Bethlehem, when He comes into the world, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. That's Psalm 40, verse 6. But a body you have prepared for Me. That's actually the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament, rendering of my ears you have opened from the Hebrew. When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, and Jesus read both the Hebrew and the Greek, the Greek version says, not my ears you have opened, but a body you have prepared for me. And so Jesus quoted that version, 
The author of Hebrews renders that version. So one more time, when Jesus comes into the world, Jesus says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Psalm 40, verse 6. But a body you prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. I'm still reading Hebrews. You have taken no pleasure. That's Psalm 40 verse 6. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do Your will, O God. That's why I came. That's Psalm 40 verses 7 and 8. So the author of Hebrews... Reading Psalm 40 explains what Jesus had to say about that psalm. And Jesus' meditation on that psalm boils down to one beautiful, magnificent truth. The whole reason that the eternal Son who didn't have a body for countless ages was given a body by His Father was so that He could die for you. Let's cut right to the chase of Christmas. The reason for the season. Let's make sure that we as Christians don't sentimentalize this holiday. Let's not stop short of believing and declaring the reason that Christ the Eternal Son took on a human name. Not only did He not have a body, His name wasn't Jesus until He was born. But the angel said to His earthly father, you shall call Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. God with us. Emmanuel. Don't stop short of believing and declaring the reason for the season. Why was the baby born in Bethlehem? We summarized it the way Jesus said it to Pontius Pilate. On the evening before, He was tacked to a piece of wood for the salvation of your soul. When King Jesus with His battered and tattered body stood before that pagan king and said, You would have no authority over me unless my Father in Heaven had granted it to you. Pilate had previously said, don't you know I have authority to kill you or release you? Jesus said, no you don't. For this purpose I was born. (laughs) Put it another way, God gave Jesus a body because there was no other way for Jesus to die. Deity cannot die. God is unkillable. So Jesus had to take on humanity to become killable. Well, let's look at our glorious Redeemer together for just a few moments. We'll take our considerations under two points. It is, for those of you who know me, maybe you can uh, sympathize with uh, what I'm about to say. It's very difficult for me not to preach all of Psalm 40. All of Psalm 40 is not only about Jesus. The first five verses are about David. Verses six through ten are about Jesus. Verses seven through seventeen, I'm sorry, eleven through seventeen are again about David. I'm just taking the middle chunk. 
there are two considerations that I want to lay before you about the body of Jesus. The first is a question, and the second is a declaration. And I mean out of great love for you to draw a line in the sand today. I'm actually just the messenger to bring to you the greatest gift in the universe. I'm the mailman. And the first question is this, what kind of sacrifice does God require? What kind of sacrifice does God require? You could actually ask the question a little deeper from legislation. You could ask it differently than judicial. What does He require? You could ask internal. What does He desire? Verse 6 actually asks both questions in Psalm 40. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. There's both heart and letter. Desire and law. Charles Simeon meditating on this verse many years ago said this psalm undoubtedly refers to Christ. Now to be faithful interpreters of the Bible, we have to understand as Christians that Old Testament texts do refer to the human author in his own experience and we ought not rip them out of that context. But as Jesus said on the day He rose from the dead, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are about Me. Luke 24. Simeon therefore rightly said, rightly said, undoubtedly, this psalm refers to Christ. And he goes on to say this sentence. Psalm 40 certainly refers to David also, who in some parts of it speaks of his own person, and in others he speaks of the person of the Messiah. I've told you I'm going to take the person of the Messiah. Verses 6-11. through because Hebrews 10, as I read for you a moment ago, tells us that verses 6-10 to are about Jesus, and specifically the reason Jesus took on humanity, we're just going to put our attention there today, and I'm asking you a question. What kind of sacrifice does God require? Now that's got to be a super important question for you. I'm not suggesting that all of us feel how important the question is. I'm just telling you it has to be an important question. I don't know if it already is an important question for you. I'm just telling you, it's got to be an important question for you. Everybody's trying to appease their deity. The false religions do it explicitly. Good works, gain your entrance to heaven. Religious exercise earns points with the deity. Everybody's trying to appease their deity. What kind of sacrifice does the one true God require? Hebrews 10 preaches Psalm 40 for us, so I'll just let the God of heaven do the preaching. After saying above, Hebrews 10 verse 8, sacrifice and offering and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are according to the law. Question is, what kind of sacrifice does God require? Hebrews 10, verse 9, then Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do Your will. That's Psalm 40, verse 8. When Jesus reads Psalm 40, verse 8, I picture in my sanctified imagination 
Maybe not entirely accurately. But I picture in my sanctified imagination the Lord Jesus in His humanity one day, perhaps on a hillside, maybe in one of those Mark 1.35 moments where He had risen early before the sun got up, even after a long night of ministry, when He's out meditating on God's Word and in prayer, Maybe one of those moments as a small child when prior to 12 years old, he was so steeped in the Scriptures that he could wow the Pharisees. I don't know at what stage of life and I don't know in what geographic location. Was he on a hillside in the daytime? Was he on the mountain in the nighttime? Was he a little boy in his father's carpentry shop? Maybe all of the above. But when Psalm 40 came into his awareness during his humanity and he meditated on it, he had to start looking at his hands. He had to start grabbing his arms, feeling his face, and realizing that the whole reason God gave him a body, flesh and bone, Hebrews 2.14, because the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, verse 17 and 18, so that he could become a propitiation for our sins. Jesus, reading Psalm 40, had to realize sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you gave to Me. And then Psalm 40, verse 8, or Hebrews 10, verse 9, tells us Jesus' resolute response to this psalm, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. The question is, what kind of sacrifice does God require? The Bible's answer is, not one you can give Him. Because you see, Hebrews 10 begins the quotation of Psalm 40 with a verse that I didn't emphasize, though I read it. Hebrews 10.4 It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. How many thousands How many hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices were there in the Old Testament? How much carnage and blood? How much slaughter and the smell of decomp? And not one offering atoned for one sin. But the Lord Jesus in His humanity understood from the words of Psalm 40, the eternal counsels of God which He had taken part of in eternity past, but in His humanity, He humbled Himself as a man to relearn, as it were, the will of God from the Scriptures just like you and I do. And as He read Psalm 40, He realized, oh, all those sacrifices only point to one great sacrifice. And that one great sacrifice is going to be me on a tree for the redemption of all God's people And Jesus' response to that that is not no way. It's John 12. Glorify Your name. I delight to do Your will. In the scroll of the book, it's written of Me, I will be the offering that You require. So Hebrews 10, I'm simply saying, says that the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, the Christ-centered Gospel of God's love for you that Jesus did for us what we could have never done for ourselves is the whole meaning of the reason that Jesus became a man. It's so beautifully and clearly stated God's answer about what He requires. 
It means that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to die for your sins and make you right with God forever. Listen carefully to Hebrews 10.10. By this will, I have come to do Your will, O God. My own death. Lord Jesus praying this psalm. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What none of those sacrifices could ever do, time and time and time again, the offering, Hebrews 10.10, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, did forever. So I'm simply saying the meaning of Advent, of Christmas, of the incarnation, of the Lord Jesus becoming a man, having a real human body just like you and I, true humanity, truly God, truly man, without division of His nature, though unity in His person, He took on humanity because deity can't die. Jesus came to earth to become killable. The blessed Gospel truth of God's great love for sinners is that there's no other way to be saved than for Jesus to die for you. And if there were another way, surely we would have enough awareness to know that God would have come up with an alternative. There's no other way. Just before the quotation of Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, we're told, as I mentioned, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So Jesus came to do what David said the Old Testament sacrifice could never, ever do. Here's the Gospel hope. Jesus is the great Savior for great sinners. That's why He came. So to answer our first question, what kind of sacrifice does God require? The Bible's answer is one kind. Ultimately, there's one kind of sacrifice God requires. And it's the kind that you and I cannot offer and no other human priest can offer. You can't be religious enough or good enough or merit God's favor in any way. Any contribution you attempt to make toward your redemption, anything you seek to add to your work for God to like you, to save you, to however you want to put it, only worsens your damnable predicament. You and I cannot offer the sacrifice God requires. We have to humble ourselves under the shadow of the cross. And the good news is, there's room at the cross for you because Jesus can make the sacrifice God requires and He has done it. So our final consideration, not only what kind of sacrifice does God require, it's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 40, 6, 7, and 8. I want us to conclude by not looking at our need only and what Jesus has done for us. But I want us to conclude this Christmas Advent Sunday before we celebrate. I want to look at Him. Look at what brings Him joy. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ for just a moment. Look at the word delight in verse 8 of Psalm 40. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do Your will. Oh my God. Now look at the word heart. Your law is within my heart. I mentioned Charles Simeon ago and he said something so beautiful about these verses. He said the beginning of the psalm, 1-5, to and the end of it seemed to belong to David only. But here... <laughs> is a passage 
which can have no reference to David. It can only be interpreted in Christ alone. I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. Do you know that Jesus was not sad to die for you? The Bible actually tells you He was glad to die for you. He delights to do the will of God in redeeming you. He takes joy and pleasure in showing off the magnanimity of the love of God for you. It thrills His inner man to make you God's child by His own doing. He takes great joy in rescuing you from your just condemnation for your offenses against His Father. It brings Him pleasure to unite you to God forever. He loved laying His life down for you. John 12 tells us that He climbed upon the cross through the hands of wicked men, no doubt, to glorify His Father. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus went to the cross and because of His obedience to that death, God highly exalted Him, gave Him a matchless name, Kyriases Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord, not ultimately for His own self-seeking pleasure, though there's no doubt part of that in a sinless way in the heart of the divine. But Philippians 2 says, because of His obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, God gave Him this majestic name, Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will one day bow their knee to Him and declare His Lordship over all. But even that is to the glory of God the Father. He takes great delight in laying down His life for the glory of His Father. But that's not the only reason. The Bible tells us not only for the glory of His Father, but second, He takes great joy for Himself in what the, the cross produces. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Now that joy is at least twofold. Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. That means He was motivated not by willpower. Okay, if I can just get through these six hours, then I'll make it to the finish line. That's not how He, got, that's not how he powered through the cross. It wasn't willpower. It was joy power. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. What joy was in front of Him? I said, it's at least twofold. Number one, it's John 17. Being reunited to the Shekinah glory of God, which He had enjoyed for all eternity before He became a man. That's a big reason. The second reason is to bring with Him people who were not there and could not get there any other way than His sacrifice. So for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Now think about this. He had the eternal glory of God in heaven before He became a man. So, if He only wanted that, He never would have came. The Bible teaches not just logically, but theologically. Chapter and verse 
that the motivating principle in the heart of God the Father and in the obedience of God the Son for Jesus to become a man, to live a sinless life, to die as a sacrifice for sinners, you and me, and to rise again from the dead, the motivating principle in the heart of God the Son was to get you to God. Peter literally said it that way. The just, the righteous, Jesus, died for the unjust, the unrighteous, you, to bring us to God. He loves to save sinners. He gets joy in that. So first I'm saying, look at Him. Look at His Psalm 40 heart that He delights to do the will of God. First, for the glory of the Father. Second, for His joy. But third, for your joy. For your joy in God. Our world takes words and redefines them. Words lose their meaning. Awesome no longer means awesome. Joy no longer means joy. Today, joy is more or less circumstantial. It's what's happening. It's conditioned on environment and experience. And in large part, our culture understands joy to mean something that is conditioned on our environment or our experience. Not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible talks about joy, we're talking about something that can be present in the midst of the greatest hardship and the most devastating loss and the most challenging of experiences and circumstances. You see, joy isn't absent when sadness is experienced. In fact, Jesus took joy in purchasing your joy in God for time and eternity. Psalm chapter 43 was written in a very challenging time of the psalmist's life. And in that very challenging time, here's what he said. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Psalm 43, verse 4, 3 and 4 and 5. I will go to God, to God my exceeding joy. Literally translated, I will go to God the joy of all my joys. Or another way to put it, Faithful translation would sound something like this. I will go to God who is my greatest joy in every lesser joy I have on earth. Jesus died to give you that. Jesus died to give you sustained joy in God for time and eternity. Or Psalm 37, you could say it this way. Jesus took great pleasure in coming to earth, dying for our sins, in order that we could do Psalm 37, that is, Delight ourselves in the Lord. So our church has a little phrase that we throw around a lot, but I just want to lay it before you again. We exist to glorify God. Well, who wouldn't say that if they're halfway religious? Right? I would think Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and Hindus and everybody else in between would say, I want to glorify God. So we have to start clarifying. We exist to glorify God. We believe the Bible teaches that happens two ways. Both are inextricably linked with the golden chain of God's love. If you want to glorify God, there are two primary ways you must do that. 
treasure Jesus Christ. Not just ontological mind belief, heart value, cherish, love, prize, rest in, trust, delight in, flee to, take refuge in, stand upon, fly unto, treasure Jesus. There's no other way for you to glorify God. There's a consequence to that though. If you treasure Him, if that's how you're going to glorify God, the consequence of that is He's too big for you. You will spread His eternal joy. You see, God is the happiest person in the universe. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us very clearly that God has anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness above all His companions. He's the happiest person in the universe. And He took great joy in sharing His joy with you. If I could boil down to the crucible of the most refined statement of what I believe the Bible teaches about God's joy, it would be this. This is what Jesus died to give you. I hope and pray, I have prayed, I'm praying in a way even now, that God would help us to believe this if this is true. If you boil down in the crucible of God's Word to the most refined way, I know how to say it. There's got to be better ways to say it. But the most refined way I know how to say it, Jesus died for you for this reason. So that you would be thrilled forever with what thrills Him forever. He didn't die to make much of you. That would actually make you miserable forever. Satan is the most sinfully self-seeking person in the universe. And he wants you to bear his image of being a sinful self-seeker. Jesus didn't die to make much of you. The Bible teaches that He died to give you an infinite joy of making much of God forever. That you could take joy with Jesus in delighting in God for eternity which would inevitably maximize the potential of your joy for eternity. In the life and death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, in His bodily ascension, in His soon coming bodily return, in your glorified body if you will trust Him in this lifetime, if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Him, your eternity will be filled to the max. And I don't know how this works, I just know that it works. You will be filled to the max with God's own joy but your maximum capacity will be ever expanding and ever full. Because God is the fountain of endless delight, Jesus will stretch your ability to delight in God forever and you will always be full. Listen to His prayer. This is how Jesus prays. Psalm 40, verse 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, You know, listen to Jesus, I have not hidden Your righteousness within my heart. 
I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You know the only right response to the great work of Jesus for us? It's something like verse 4 of Psalm 40. As for, uh, pardon me, reading the wrong chapter. That one's good too. Psalm 40, verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. Amen. The gift God gave us in the incarnation of Christ is of inestimable value. You can't calculate Jesus. He doesn't fit into your calculator. There's no algorithm. There's no metric. You can't plug enough numbers into the equation. There are no formulas. It doesn't matter. The best mathematician in the world cannot calculate what 2 Corinthians 9.15 is talking about. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. The Bible speaks not only of His inability to be described, but also of His unfathomableness in His riches in Ephesians 3.8. Of His unsearchableness in His grace, Romans 11.33. The gift of God is, Romans 6.23, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, as a little baby, that little baby is truly God. John 1.1, the Word was God. Hebrews 1.8, your throne, O God, is the way the Father speaks to the Son during His time on earth. John 20.28, 20, Thomas touched Him after His resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, and said, my Lord and my God. In Acts 20, we are to shepherd as pastors the church of God, which he purchased with His own blood. That's Jesus. In 1 John 3.16, we know the love of God because He laid down His life for us. He's God. In 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and this is the true God and eternal life. In 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. He's God. And that's why I said, this Advent is meant to draw a line in the sand. He's not only God. He's truly man. That little babe was actually wrapped in swaddling cloths by His mother. But at the same time as God, He was followed by a star and pronounced by angels at His birth. As a man, He was around the age of 30 baptized in a river. And at the same time as God, the Spirit lighted on Him in the form of a dove. As truly man, He was often wearied and tired. The Gospel of Mark tells us He didn't have time to eat or sleep because of the relentlessness of His schedule and ministry. But at the same time, though weary and tired, as God, He constantly was refreshing and healing others. As man, He slept in a boat. As God, He calmed the waves that rocked it. As man, he had no place to call His home. As God, the heavens themselves cannot contain Him. As man, He was tempted by Satan. As God, He defeated the devil in His own death. As man, He's as imminent and close to you and closer still than any person you've ever known. He's nearer to you than your own breath. He has come all the way down to us in His imminence and humanity. And as God, He is transcendent and unimaginable in His expanse. And Advent says, 
that He took great joy in giving all of His wonderful self to you forever. What a God! Join me as we pray together. Oh, Father, it is embarrassing how slow my mind and heart are. I don't know about my friends here. In meditating upon the wonder of Your Son. We are just thankful that those who know Him through His death, His resurrection, His Gospel accomplishment, we are so thankful that for eternity, we will have the opportunity to continue to know His inexhaustible worth. We pray that You would continually fill us with Your fullness. And I'm asking even now that any among us who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord, any who have not fled from the wrath to come through the wounds of Jesus, any who have not come to You by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, any who have not met You at the cross, that even right now, they would turn from sin and put their trust in the risen Jesus and You would make them new creatures. For Your glory, O God, would You save more among us, our loved ones, our family, our friends, as we gather over this coming week with so many who You have made dear to us. We ask that You would allow us to be ministers of Your mercy to them. Thank You that You have sent King Jesus to be Your minister of mercy to us. What a wonder the Gospel is. We love You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.